So when I said I'm changing up the sermon a little bit, yeah, I am. And that is done so on purpose. I'm not unprepared. God's word assures me of that. But we're going to look at the scriptures from all the way back in Leviticus, all the way back to Exodus, and all the way through so that we understand at the end of the worship gathering today, when we worship together in community, what it, rem- what it means to do this in remembrance of me. So let's pray together as we prepare to go on a journey toward communion. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise that you give us all we need. I thank you for the promise that you are the bread of life and that you would give yourself up for us, that you love us that much, that you would guide every step of our paths and draw us to yourself. From the beginning of time, you were bringing people unto yourself. I thank you for the covenant of atonement that says we can be set free from our sins that we think define us somehow. And that instead, through the shedding of your own blood through Jesus Christ, that we've been set free. And so, Lord, as we go through these tender moments together, would you soften our hearts? Would you remind us of grace? Would you help us to enjoy fellowship? And would you draw us to yourself? In this we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start today, not with a crowd breaker, not with anything, but I want to start today with the passage that we recognize. If you brought your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When we speak of communion, this is usually one of the first two places we look. So the way I figure it, let's start there and work backward. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, was begging at the heart of Corinth, a couple of things. The first thing he was begging was to remember that God is to be glorified in everything we do. God has you people in Corinth here for just such a time as this, and you need to make sure that he is Lord over every part of your life. And in so doing, that will reflect how you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then in so doing, as you understand what it means to live out, remember what the gospel is? The good news. Thank you. Woohoo! Somebody was listening last week. We remember that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ given for us, raised victoriously so that our sins are thrown into the lake of fire, burned up, gone, Deeper than the ocean floor. They are forgotten. They are no more. Our sins are remembered no more. And we are set free to a new life for all eternity. But Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's saying, Well, you're busy feeding your hungry stomachs. You're busy arguing about all these petty things and these ways of the world instead of remembering what's truly important. And then he came to a specific practice in the church. There are two things in the Protestant church that we call sacraments. That's a fancy way for things that are set apart for a special time. One of those, 
we practiced last Saturday, and that's the sacrament of baptism. That's public display of an inward transformation. In other words, we publicly say, I have been transformed. I have been crucified with Christ. The life I live is no longer mine, but I am a new creation in Christ, and I want the world to know that. And I am marked with his seal in every part of my life. It's the wonderful sacrament of baptism. The second sacrament then that we come to, and at Alliance International Church, we do it on a monthly basis, is this of communion. And what communion is, is ultimately a God-given, through Jesus Christ, practice of remembering who Jesus is, what he's done, and how we're to live now in honor of him. And as Paul was teaching the church in Corinth what to do, he said, now on this, I've got no praise for you. You've missed it. We, the church, 2,000 years on, have changed communion slightly. Communion, honestly, would have been much more like our potluck two weeks ago than it is like this. Did you know that? Communion in the early church was a feast, a very celebration of breaking bread together and drinking wine or grape juice if you need to. It's fine. In honor of who Jesus is, celebrating not only who Jesus is, but that he has brought us together. Everything about it was meant to be a feast in celebration. And if you understand anything about God's word, you know that God loves when people get together and feast. In the Old Testament, in what we know as the Old Covenant, there were feasts throughout the year, celebrations throughout the year to mark the harvest, to mark the Day of Atonement, to mark the Passover, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But these feasts were meant to bring people together, not to stuff our tummies. We're probably doing okay on that regard. But to get together to celebrate who God is and what he's done. Communion, at its very heart, was about the three C's. And before we read the scriptures, I'll introduce you to the three C's and we'll work through them. The first C, you can usually guess this one. Christ. Communion always begins and ends with Jesus Christ. If you are thinking about communion for any other reason than that, you have already missed the point. And I invite you to come to Jesus and remember that he has given himself up for us and he has risen, that death has lost its sting, sin has lost its victory. That was all because of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. The second is the word covenant. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, gave us a new covenant in his blood. I know that sounds kind of vampirish if you've never heard it before, like Jesus giving his blood for others. But we know throughout the scripture that without the shedding of physical blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. Sins cost something. Sins bring consequence. Now the reality is that all have sinned and missed the glory of God. Everyone has. There was no one that could stand before God. And this is what we talked about in our small group two weeks ago. 
There is no one that can stand before God and say, here you go, God, I'm good enough. This is what you need from me. This is what I offer you and you'll take this because it it adds value to you, God. Unfortunately, and fortunately for you and I, is we understand the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't fix ourselves. We needed a new covenant. Because in the old covenant, we learn that time and again, the people of Israel that foreshadowed how we would then live years and years on, kept trying to do things in their own way. They would keep saying, okay, God, we will follow you. But did you really mean what you said about this one over here? For instance, uh, in the book of Ezra, we find out that the people of Israel had been intermarrying with people from other nations. Now, to you and I, I I look around and I know many of you and you have married people from other nations. And this does not make you a sinner. You're already a sinner. (laughs) But this does not make you disobedient to God because you have married someone that is not of the same ethnic origin or same country of origin as you. Did you know that? But... In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were called to be a holy nation, a people that were set apart for God, a people that were to show the world what it means to be dedicated to God. They were the only nation that was to do that. Everyone else was to learn from Israel and was to follow along. But they were busy following their own gods and following their own religious practices, and following their own ways of the world. The people who are of Israel were supposed to be walking down the straight line. And if they began to invite outside influence into their community, what was bound to happen? They were going to fall. Easy illustration here as we get started today on this idea of communion. I do not weigh a lot. I get that. But it's pretty simple for me to tell you that it would be easier for Uncle Brian, my friend right here, to pull me down off of this chair than it would for him to lift me up on it. Is that not true? Simple gravity says that yes, that is true. What was happening for the people of Israel was in their minds they were justifying saying, okay, We'll show them by intermarrying, by getting involved with them, and they won't, they won't bring their practices into us. We'll lift them up. It didn't work. Consistently throughout the scriptures, it never worked. Time and again, even Solomon fell. Solomon, the wisest man of all, said he was going to do it, and he still fell short, and he still allowed things to come into his kingdom. And so when you get to the books of First and Second Chronicles, when you get to First and Second Kings, what do we read? a bunch of kings that did evil in the sight of God. A bunch of people that said, okay, God, you gave us this, but we're going to do it over here because we know better than you. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sins have an expense that is costly. Now, if you go further back... We'll get to that. But let's stand and let's pause and let's recite together 
what Paul was teaching us. So would you rise? We're going to read the scripture together this morning because it's that significant. You understand now the the perspective and the context with which Paul was writing. Paul writing to the church saying, you've missed the point. Come back. But like a good leader that Paul is, he didn't just tell them to do it. He explained to them how. And so that's what we want to look at today. So would you read with me? We're going to read about six verses together. If, If it doesn't all make sense, just read it to yourself. No problem. But if you want to read out loud, let's read this together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper... He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's those last two verses that caught me and made me feel like we needed to back up as a church family and examine ourselves and examine what it means to discern the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Because if we understand how far we've come so far, that sin has a cost that is far greater than we could pay, we begin to look differently on this wonderful, wonderful blessing of Christ's giving us communion. So we pick up the story of Israel, and we have to go further back than just the kings. The kings had been unfaithful, but before that, the people of God had been unfaithful. If you go all the way back to the Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, which is basically Abraham's promise by God, to Abraham, that he would be made a people of great nations, that many nations would come out of Abraham. And so doing, that all the nations would worship God, that he was going to be used to show God's glory on the earth. Okay? And in so doing, that he was to follow God's leading. Now, after that, God also promised Abraham that your people will be exiled from time to time because God knew what was coming. And in those exiles, they were going to have the opportunity to show what it means to follow and be faithful to God. Unfortunately, time and again, they didn't do that. So we move ahead in the book of Genesis and we get to to Moses. And we get to Moses having grown up in Egypt himself. And as he grows up in Egypt, God begins to lay on his heart later on in life 
through a series of miraculous events that it is time for the people of Israel to be set free. And Moses was going to be the one charged with leading them from their slavery into the promised land, into freedom that God had promised Abraham long before. And as they did, as the ten plagues were brought upon the people of Egypt and they were set free, they began to wander in the wilderness. And as they got close to the promised land, God doing all those miracles already, the people doubted. The people got stuck with the picture in their own eyes of what it was supposed to be like, how this was supposed to work. And they, metaphorically speaking, had the audacity, had the courage to say, there's no way God could give us this land. So God didn't. God turned them around and allowed them to go through what we in the church call the wilderness wanderings. It's a fancy name to say they walked around in the woods for 40 years. God allowed them to live with the consequence of their choice. But when they entered in to this covenant with God, while they made mistakes, God was continuing to refine and to shape and to prepare them. He continued to travel with them. A cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Is that not amazing? That they were always reminded that God was with them. Down to the fact that if you travel for 40 days, you realize that we don't read that any of their shoes fell apart. That God was continually providing for his people. That God each day would give them the manna and the food they needed to be sustained for that day. But being the good humans that the people of Israel were, what did they do? They complained. They said, God, it's not good enough that you miraculously send us food in the middle of the desert where there's nothing. We want better. We want more. We want it our way. And Moses gets fed up with them and he strikes a rock instead of speaking to a rock. And we're told that in that process that Moses was to be kept out of the promised land because he too fell into the trap of turning to himself rather than entrusting God. But Moses isn't marked so much for his disobedience as he is marked for his faithfulness. You see, it's through God using Moses that we were given the Ten Commandments and the law that still guards much of our moral fibers today. As a human society, it would be good for all of us to have no other gods but God himself. It would be the only way to live rightly. It would be wise for all of us not to participate in adultery, in lying and deceit, in um, jealousy and slander. It would be wise of us not to murder one another, unborn or born. It would be wise of, not, wise of us as we go through Leviticus to care, as we'll talk about next week, for those that are sojourners, the immigrants among us, whatever their situation in life. Because God had set out a better way to live. 
and in setting out a better way to live and in delivering God's people, we were shown that his hand would be upon his people. As they were leaving Egypt, we back up even a little further, and they're leaving Egypt. And God says, write it on the door frames with the blood of a lamb that the people of God live in this home. And that when the angel came, as the people of Israel were about to be set free from the evil, tyrannical hand of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, God passed by those homes, not taking the firstborn son of those homes. And the Passover was forever instituted at that time. God, looking past those homes, the blood had been shed, the protection of God's people was assured, and the angel of death moved on. God yet again showed his people that he was looking out for them and would deliver them. As God thus gave the law, when we get to Leviticus, we're told that in the time of sacrifice, in the time of atonement, the day of atonement that would come in these cycles, in these seasons of life, in the life of the people of Israel, the time of atonement, making payment for our sins, it was done via two goats. And I want to read to you from Leviticus chapter 16. This is what Aaron, the priest, was to do. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own offering to make his atonement for himself and his household. Then, so Aaron was the priest. Aaron had a high and holy calling on his life and he was charged with first sacrificing himself making payment before the Lord, confessing his sins before the Lord. Then he would move on and be God's representative of the people. And this is what he was to do. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Interesting choice of words. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Now, if you read further, you learn that literally they would touch the scapegoat and it would be a physical metaphor of carrying all the sins of the people of Israel and then they would cast it out. They would kick it out. It was no longer to be part of the people of God. The other goat that was then chosen as the spotless, pure, chosen goat to be given as a sacrifice was the blood sacrificed, offered to God. It's amazing what it had to look like to show the people of God that sin had consequence and payment had to be made. But all of this was but a shadow of what was to come. God was preparing his people through the Passover, through the lamb, through the example of this idea of the scapegoat, someone having to bear our sins on our behalf, someone here being a goat, not an actual person but preparing the people for what it would mean 
for our sins to be paid for once for all. So when we get to the good news of Jesus Christ, listen to Jesus' words very carefully, understanding that idea of the Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain for the deliverance of the people of Israel, then understanding the need for the scapegoat to carry the sins as well as the sacrificial goat that was given as a pure, pure sacrifice. And then listen to what Jesus says as he presents the Lord's Supper. He replied, Oops, I'm too far ahead. While they were still eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat this. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In one proclamation, Jesus explained to his disciples what was coming, that his blood would be spilled out for the forgiveness of sins, that his body would be broken as provision for the people of God. And that he was the pure, the spotless, the righteous lamb, the only one that could offer himself to God as a right sacrifice. But he didn't just do that. He then said, whenever you do this, You do it in remembrance of me. There was a plurality to that statement that said, it's not just I worship God in my own heart. So we've been through the idea of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And now we look at him giving us the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And we move on to as we remember him, he charged us to do that in community. In fact, if you looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you would read this. Because there is what... Now, I confess that for sanitary reasons today, we don't often do it this way. Again, we've changed it up a little bit, but the practice is still there. And Paul was telling the people of Corinth, saying, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body for we all partake of one loaf. There's community in communion. Later on, after Paul explains the Lord's Supper to us, in just a few short verses later, he teaches the people the resulting concept of what it means to live a life in communion. And you know how he does it? He says if, if it's about Christ and his covenant and we do it in community together, then we're going to live a life of love. Love that is a few things. 
Would you like to know what he had to say about love for the people of God as we live out one with another? Using our gifts in chapter 12, he told us that we are to use the gifts he's given us. And in chapter 13, he looks, or he writes to the people of Corinth. And he says, now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. And the most excellent way is love that is filled with the grace of God that covers a multitude of sins. Where some of us find ourselves this morning is knowledge of sin, but not repentance of that sin. Where others of us find ourselves is knowledge and even repentance, but identity in that sin. What do I mean by that? We basically believe in our hearts that the sins that I have committed are so egregious, so horrible that God couldn't possibly look upon me with these eyes of love and forgive me. He just couldn't do it. And so we allow ourselves to be marked by the sins of our past. And others of us can come in and we think about looking at sin and think, well, my sin isn't as bad as their sin, so I'm good. Because clearly God would look with more favor upon me than he would on someone that has done this, this, and this. How dare all those pastors whose names were found out to be looking for adulterous affairs on Ashley Madison, the website, when I'm over here looking at porn every night. God would deal more harshly with them. And we justify our actions. I used an extreme example there, but I believe you get the idea. And so we come into these three places of repentance, of those that we know the sin, but if we repent, it means that we're turning away. Confession is acknowledging sin. Repentance means I'm going to turn and go the other way. And that's where the church family has struggled culturally. Because as we look around the world, we find ourselves in, for years, the church has compromised truth. And we've said, we can adjust this and adapt to culture. And people are in the church now saying that we need to adapt culture again to address homosexual marriage or address that sometimes abortion is necessary or address that, you know, we shouldn't necessarily let immigrants get a chance at life. They don't deserve it. What have they ever done but needed a home because their countries are in war? And we begin to set up these walls saying, I don't need that. I don't need the grace of God. This morning, if you find yourself in that category, when the time comes to examine yourself, I invite you to read Psalm 51. When David says, my sin is always before me, but Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence and take not the joy of your salvation from me. 
when we understand that repentance means turning back to God and what he's done, there is joy when we take the cup and when we take the bread and we remember who Jesus is and what he's done because the joy of our salvation is new every morning. If we have failed, we confess, we repent, and we say in the strength of the Lord God Almighty, I am not marked by that, I am forgiven. He who knew no sin became sin for me, that I am the righteousness of God. So when we commune together, we cry out together that we are the very righteousness of God. We are brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God. For those of you that feel like I hate myself for my sin, there's hope. There's forgiveness and there's healing. God himself, in the most tangible ways possible, showed time and again that he would do whatever it took to bring his people back to himself. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Hosea that was charged with, outside of a different prophet having to do some awkward things, the most painful prophetic act ever. And that was marry an adulteress, a, a prostitute most likely, and then let her cheat on him, and then welcome her back and have children with her and love them as his own, knowing that he was to be a picture of God wanting the people of Israel to come back to himself. And in Hosea, we learn that God's love is unconditional because he will pay the price. His love does have a condition that our sins are paid for, but it's a condition we cannot meet. Only he could meet it through his son, Jesus Christ. So if you are struggling in a place right now where you say, I can't even consider communion because God could never forgive me. I say, yes, he will, no matter what. For it is by grace through faith you have been saved. Not by your own works, not by your own goodness or badness, but because Jesus Christ loved you so much that no matter what circumstance you find yourselves in right now, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. And maybe that's what you desperately need this morning is rest and freedom from your past or freedom from your present. Saying, God, help me. And Jesus looked at a people with compassion and he says, come on, I've got you. I'm here for you. Now there's the third group. I don't like labels very much, but we can carry ourselves like Pharisees sometimes. Or if you don't understand what a Pharisee is, how about the animal, a peacock? You ever see a peacock? You know, they strut kind of better than everybody else. They strut high and like they're, they just carry themselves. They're an ugly animal, I think, but when they plume out that beautiful feathers, all of a sudden you're like, wow, and they carry themselves with all this grandeur of how great I am. And it's kind of like, look at me, I'm a peacock. In the church, now, publicly, none of us, most likely, would admit to doing this. 
And I'm not asking you to get up here with Mike and say, I look at all of you and think I'm better than you. But in our heart of hearts, are there not times when because we know what others are going through or how other situations are handled that we think to ourselves, God, thanks that I'm not like them. Funny thing is, Jesus had a lot to say about people like that. And none of it was very kind. It was the truth. And the truth of the matter was, if we carry ourselves in constant states of comparison, in constant states of, I have to make sure you think I'm holier than you so that somehow God likes me more than you, then I'm religious. We have fallen into the trap of Satan the minute we do that. Not only that, but we have eliminated ourselves from true true biblical communion that comes by remembering who Jesus is and what he has done by saying, this is my body broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. If you understand biblical theology, you come back to where we started. Who has sinned? All of us have sinned. How does God feel about sin? The scriptures are very clear. He hates it. Now, in my household, we're not allowed to use the word hate because I don't want my kids growing up saying they hate everything, except for Brussels sprouts. That's fine. But we can get caught up in thinking that God doesn't mind sin. And therefore, our sins aren't that bad. And so it's okay that we wrestle with this. We'll just kind of keep it off in this side closet of our hearts. And Jesus looked at him and said, this is the only reward you've got. Your righteousness that you're living in right now because you think that this is it, that you are holy based on your own actions, based on your own merit, Jesus looked at the people and he said, that's it, congratulations, there is your reward. But, you gotta love when Jesus says, but. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who understand that they bring to God nothing but need. Because it is in that moment of need, in that moment of repentance, in that moment of utter despair, saying, God, I've tried to get back to you on my own and I can't. God, I've tried to figure out the mess that is all of this world around me and it seems so hopeless. Would you give me meaning and purpose? And God breathed into that circumstance for all eternity and gave us Jesus Christ. And he said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn at their sin, for their sins will be forgiven. They'll be set free. They will be comforted. Throughout the scriptures... God gives us this amazing picture that he is holy, that he absolutely hates sin, 
and that all have sinned and that he would love us so much that in the reality of that sin, he would offer the only solution possible. He would give himself to save us. He would give himself to say you're sinking. Think about Peter. You remember Peter walking on water? He got like three steps in and then he realized, oh no, where am I? And he started sinking. And Jesus picked him up. Out of the watery grave, he was pulled. And into the loving arms of a savior that said, Peter, I've got you. And upon you, I will build my church. Peter, the loudmouth disciple. I love that guy. Because he spoke first and thought later. Peter, the guy that time and again said, oh, Jesus, don't just wash my feet. Give me a bath. Well, that's kind of creepy. But he was so excited about following Jesus. And we get this great picture of us. That if we are walking in faith and suddenly we look down and we see the bottom, it is Christ's great love that compels us upward. It is Christ that pulls us out of the depth and the mire and says, I've got you, and I invite you into fellowship with me for all eternity. Through me, you'll have access to the Father. Through me, the Holy Spirit will guide you, will teach you, and will shape you, and will show you things in this book that you never dreamt you could see. Through me, you'll see the world with a completely different lens. If you would but follow me. If you would but remember what it is I have been doing for you from the beginning of time when I told you that you were made in my very image. If you would but remember that it is I who made the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And I got the order backwards, but it's still John 1, 1. We remember that from the beginning of time, God's plan has been at work. So when we come to communion, we remember Jesus Christ. We remember who he is, that he gave his body to remind us that together we remember him and we live out that memory and how we lovingly care for one another with patience, with kindness. Love is patient, love is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. It never fails. And those are just four of the many that are listed in 1 Corinthians 13. We're invited to remember that in communion with each other. We're invited to remember that as we drink of the cup, we proclaim that we have been forgiven and set free, that our sins do not define us no matter how painful they are. And oh, there's more. Other people's sins don't define them either. Maybe that's your biggest struggle. That you look at others and say, I can't forgive them. Well, if love keeps no record of wrong, we have to let the Lord deal with it, not ourselves. And so when we drink of the cup, we proclaim his new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, ours and that of others. And maybe others haven't yet turned to the Lord. Well, we pray for them. 
And then finally, as we celebrate that new covenant in his blood, we remember that the table is an invitation to invite others into a place of fellowship with God the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. So when the Apostle Paul said man and woman ought to examine themselves before they come to the table, he did it with all of that depth. And that's only just the surface of communion. But he did it with all of that depth, saying, remember Christ, remember his covenant, and remember community together, that we remember Jesus, his body broken for us, one loaf, one body that we are together, his blood for the forgiveness of sins. So what we're going to do now is we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to start with a few moments of silence as Paul instructed us that we ought to examine ourselves before we come because if we don't, look at verse 29 very carefully. Let me read it again just so make you remember it. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, us together, the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, we have to understand that communion is the bringing in together of the saints to remember Jesus and what he's done. And to do so with bitterness in our heart toward one another or rebellion in our hearts toward God is to miss the point of why Jesus has given himself and that brings us to a place of judgment. And we miss it. So let's be quiet before the Lord for a few moments as we prepare our hearts to celebrate and remember who Jesus is, what he's done, and how we remember together. Maybe for you this morning, you've wondered, Mike, that's a lot of, a lot of ground you've covered. And I, I don't particularly understand it all. Well, I want to make sure you understand how simple it is. God saw the sinfulness of man, and he gave his one and only son out of his great love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for us. And that son came and lived a righteous and pure and perfect life that we never could. And then because of that purity was fit to pay the penalty, to pay the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice and penalty, becoming the scapegoat, casting, being given our sin, he who knew no sin, becoming sin for us so that we might have access to God for all eternity 
through his finished work because he didn't just bear the sin of the world, but he rose victoriously over it once for all. That sin has lost its sting, or death has lost its sting, sin has lost its victory. And so if you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me invite you into a relationship with him this morning that says, I believe that he would pay for my sins in order that I might know him forever and enjoy him forever. And we would love to pray with you in that. And our, anyone in our church would be honored to do that. Just let us know.